I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 52 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York, sometimes, about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. We wanted to take this opportunity to explore the question uh, that many theater people and others are asking right now. Um, How does the world of the arts take meaningful action in light of some of the devastating events of the past few weeks, and specifically uh, the latest police killings of black men and women? And so many theater companies have issued statements uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Some have canceled online events. Uh, Slave Play donated $10,000 to the National Bailout Fund. Uh, What the Constitution Means to Me donated $6,000 to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, So there's a lot of initiatives bubbling everywhere. People are putting uh, streaming stuff, making available, uh, making material available. Um, but there's also a sense, particularly among black theater leaders, that issues of racism and white supremacy are not front and center in the programs of many theater companies, and that more than words and donations are needed. Beyond that, of course, this is also the time of the pandemic that has shuttered theaters all across the nation and the world, which means that perhaps there is a potential for a useful pause for us all to reflect on the humanitarian goals and the individual missions that drive the fields. Keeping this in mind, we've invited to join us today Tamala Woodard, co-artistic director of New York's highly regarded Working Theater. Yeah, Working Theater, uh, Terry and Elizabeth, has an admirable mission itself. Um, It it dubs itself a theater for working people. It produces award-winning professional productions, quote, for and about bus drivers and baristas, postal workers and police officers uh, who are participate in the playmaking. Uh, the 35-year-old company uh, goes into the five boroughs of New York to create plays about the issues confronting working people, whether it's about immigration, gentrification, or simply family life. And now Tamala is one of a small but growing number of black leaders at the helm of theater companies in this country along with, for example, Nataki Garrett at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, uh, Jamil Jude at True Colors Theater Company in Atlanta, and Hannah S. Sheriff at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Uh, Tamila is a director herself and a graduate of the Yale School of Drama and Carnegie Mellon University. (laughs) (laughs) Her credits include associate director of the Tony Award-winning musical Hadestown. Kamala, we're thrilled to have you with us here in in, uh, the cloud. Where are you speaking to us from, by the way? I'm in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, sitting in my house, also my office, also my rehearsal room. (laughs) (laughs) You've got it all together. All together. Uh, I thought we might start by asking you something that the three of us have talked about uh, on our own, which is, how did you first discover and become interested in live theater, theater on a stage? I was in elementary school (laughs) doing, you know, the spring play uh, (laughs) that we've all done, you know, and I lived for that spring play. I lived to be cast in the spring play and uh, the Wizard of Oz and, you know, uh, you know, all of those sort of you know, goodness knows who makes them, who makes the script, but I live for those things. And so I started in, in my little elementary school and then I um, went to a performing arts high school. But the thing that really did it 
and I'll tell you, it, it was this. I, I, I wanted to be Dorothy. Of course, I was the Tin Man because that's the story of all people who actually end up in the theaters. <laughs> you right, never right. Like, <laughs> Archetypical. Yeah. So I have my trash can that mom made on and, you know, the, <laughs> the, the belt that keep it on. And I'm like rolling around on this trash can, this tin trash can with my hat and everything. And, uh, you know, my, my pro- very progressive school had a kind of theater in the round. So we did it around the audience, you know? And the poor audience is like trying to follow us by turning their heads behind them. And and I get to one of the little platforms that we're supposed to do our dance and uh, it's six feet off the ground and I fall off the platform. And I mean, it is the oh most catastrophic sound ever. Oh, <laughs> I bet like, that was memorable. It was, there was absolute silence. As I sat there and thought, oh, no, I think I've fallen off the stage. (laughs) I got up. There was the biggest applause and laugh ever. And that is the moment I was like, why would I ever do anything else? (laughs) There's nothing like applause to do. That's (laughs) wonderful. What was the first adult play you ever saw? Do you remember? Uh, It was Fences, August Wilson's Fences at the Alley. I was uh, 11, 12 years old. And, mm. uh, I think I, you, you, I, you, you don't know, but I tell this story all the time, <laughs> which is because <laughs> it is the moment that I was recommitted <laughs> to theater mm. that mm. last moment, you know, I'm an 11 year old kid. I don't know actually what the play is about, <laughs> you know, but I'm watching it. And there's a very last moment at the end of the second, second act where Troy has the bat and he's saying to, you know, death, come and get me, come and get me. And I watch the sidewalk of the set begin to light up one Mm. step by one step. And then it goes faster and faster and faster and speeds towards his fence. And the lights go out just as it gets there. And I was absolutely stunned when the... um, the scene light came up for the next scene, this is sort of the epilogue. Uh, I remember going, that was magic. I'm going to make the magic. And oh, that's wow. in every rehearsal I do now. It's like, mm. oh, we've got to make some simple magic, everybody. Where's it going to come from? Mm, you know, wonderful. and that's, that's, uh, yeah. So that was the first adult play. I was still a child. Oh, absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Tamala, was it? How, you know, we, we hear about this a lot and I'm trying to th- reach back to when I first saw uh, a stage piece, but how important was it for you as a, a little girl to see people who looked like you on the stage? Oh, it was, it was, um, I, I feel very lucky because my early introductions to theater, were, there were always people that looked like me. Um, mm. The Ensemble Theater, um, was a, which is in Houston, um, Texas, uh, which is where I uh, born and raised, um, uh, was a staple. I went to the, we went to the Ensemble. Once I started going to the theater, that's the theater I went to. Um, mm. uh, the plays that I saw at the alley were often, you know, the February plays. <laughs> like right, 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 right. Because right. it was a special occasion. Yeah. And so, so um, most of the work that I saw and it, it was performed by uh, artists that look like me and also written by artists that look like me. And so I thought hmm. that the theater was available to me. Um, so interesting. And that didn't change until I actually went off to undergraduate school. Mm, and tell then, us more about that. Yes. Well, if, if you would, please. <laughs> sure. You know, I left Texas and like every 18 year old, you go to college and you think, how different can the world be than the one that I know? 
Uh, mm. And immediately you see how different the world can be than the one that you know. And one yeah. of those differences was profoundly like just a population that didn't look at all like me. Um, mm. And certainly, and didn't talk like me, being this young Texas where, girl. Where, where did you go to college? Where was Car- that? Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Oh, Carnegie yeah. Uh, in Pittsburgh. Gotcha. Yeah. And I went to the conservatory program there. Uh, mm-hmm. my, you know, my plan for college was like, I wanted to go to acting school and I wanted to go to the one that was furthest away that, uh, I could afford. And it was Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that was, the, that was as far away as I could get from Texas. That's a uh, big jump. It's a big jump and it was a big cultural jump. Um, mm. and when I went to school there, Pittsburgh wasn't as, um, you know, rock in a place as it is right now, it was right. really, really just suffering, um, economic, like devastated. And the black people that were, that I came in contact with, um, they were, uh, in, in the community, just, I remember saying to myself, why, if you were a black person, would you live in the city? This is this is a terrible place to live. Um, yeah. You can't make, you, there, there are no jobs, you can't make a living. And, you know, you didn't have access to a lot of the sort of fancy things that were surrounding the school that I went to. Um, economic, you just, that people just didn't, they just didn't have things. Um, yeah. So I felt really um, confused. <laughs> it's really the like word. Like you were stuck between two worlds, something like that? Uh, I, I, it was, it was not even two worlds. It felt that I'd, I'd arrived on a different planet and I didn't know that there was another planet. And so I was negotiating between things that I didn't quite understand, which was, um, in te- I, I said, in te- you know, I remember saying to my mom in Texas, at least in terms of like, how people think of you because of your race, they say it out loud. And I found that in the Northeast, that was not the case. And so Mm. there was like explicit, um, but unspoken racial bias, Mm. um, that rendered me powerless to deal with because it was, no one would acknowledge it. And in your department, so in, in the school, in the in the in the school, in the city, everywhere, you know yeah. that that I was encountering myself as a human being in that in that place. And this isn't also not because the people themselves were terrible people, but there, you know, um, as we are finding right now, there's there has been no examination of their particular privilege or a particular point of view as simply a point of view and not the only way to see or do things. Right. Um, and so the kinds of plays that were chosen for the black students, the kinds of material that uh, um, we were given, the way we were communicated to um, was just really um, um it, it demonstrated um, the lack of care or thought or examined intention. Um, and there was institutionally, there was really nobody was pressed to do anything except for be a great acting teacher and whatever crazy, wacky exercises, that, you know, we were given that could be really um, demeaning and devastating and confusing because you're a kid. You're mm. still a kid in, in college. So. So those were, yeah, those were, those were interesting times. And I, you know, and there were three black girls, uh, we were, you know, 18 year olds, 17 year olds at the time. And we were told that, uh, from the upperclassmen, only one of us was going to make it. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Like like they say in law school, that's really scary. Yeah. And it was, you know, also there's three of you to start, but really only one of you is going to graduate, you know, and that, you know, there used to be the cut system. And that was that, and you saw that, you saw that demonstrated in all of the classes. Um, One class had two, two, two black people. (laughs) And uh, And so, you know, they were extremely talented. So the competition was between ourselves. And that's, that is a, uh, a, 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 uh, an even worse thing yeah. um, mm. um, that's set up. And that is, that is, that is in the theater right now. The competition is often uh, um, you're, you're set upon yourselves. Um, is it a bar to friendship, to collegiality? Uh, it, it was not in my case. I mean, my, uh, w- one of the people, one of those other two black uh, women is my best friend she lives around the corner from me. (laughs) (laughs) We've always lived with or near each other and the godmother to her, her kids. Uh, So that, and we're very different humans. Um, uh, It was not, it it was the exact opposite. Actually. I think that we cleaved to each other because we really needed to see our reflections um, uh, um, somewhere. We needed to understand that we were valuable um, and we were valuable in each other's eyes without having to prove it. Wow. It didn't uh, it didn't it didn't thwart you. It didn't make you feel like, you know, this world is not going to be making a space for me, that it's going to pit me against, you know, what the white sort of establishment thinks it will fit me into. I mean, how did you. How did you process that as a young woman and and maintain a sense of confidence and self-worth? I think you – there's a – you know, um, Franz Fanon talks about double consciousness. And that's what ha- – I, I, I really um, – I think that is an incredible way to think about um, how you exist as a, as a black mm. artist in – this country, um, or as a black person in this country, certainly as a black artist, but there's an idea of the self that you need to project, right? That you're like Mm -hmm. constantly in charge of telling other people the story about who you are, um, so that they can say yes to you. Right. Mm. And as an actor, as I started as an actor, you know, it's, we're always, you know, that's what you're, it's like, how do, how do you say yes to me in that play, in your play, in your rehearsal rooms? Um, and then there's that other consciousness that is like the, when you, when you're not having to project some sort of narrative, not having to like, just try to maintain control over your, who am I, um, and other mm. people's eyes. Um, I, I I will say yes. It all of this puts itself or manifests itself in your spirit in your subconsciousness. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I I can remember auditioning for a play and there being, you know, it's not. It's a. It was. Um, Metamorphosis, uh, Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphosis, and sure. and I love this play so much. I I saw mm. it on uh, just after September eleventh and told my agent, whatever happens, I want to be in this play. Can you help me be in this play? And so the first time they were uh, doing a big tour of the United States with four or five theaters, I auditioned for it. And I remember seeing a a, a, a person that I'd known, we graduated at the same time there too. And I was like, uh-oh, it's me or her. Mm. Mm. 
Now, of course, it was both of us that were cast. So it was, wow. you know, that's and great. again, like Happy those ending. things unprove themselves. Yes, but that's what I had in my brain. Of course, and that I, makes yeah. sense. And I didn't put that in my brain. Yeah. That's the world that I was, you know, you know, I was being socialized um, with this as, as this is, of course, how this is going to come. And so it's a constant undoing. It's a constant, constant, constant undoing. Um, this idea of scarcity, this idea of only one of you or two of you or very few of you at the table, at in the room, on the stage at a time is, a, is quite real. Mm. Mm. When did you first get into a, a rehearsal space where you felt understood? Mm. Did you ever? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> that is a really difficult question. I don't know about this understanding at all because I barely understand myself. So uh, I, you know, maybe, I maybe comfortable is a better way to put it. Yeah, at ease. I I am at ease in the theater. That's why I make it. You know, there are uneasy things and discomforting things and um, curious things and. And, and heartbreaking things, but... But in my, a good way, like challenged in a good way. In a good and a bad way, the way that we love, right. the way that we, you know, we think of our lovers, right? They're right, good right. and bad, <laughs> right, right. but we cannot leave them, you know? Right. I right. mean, there's something that is so, that um, is required of me in the theater that is not required anywhere else. And it's a way that I can see myself and redefine myself. Uh, it's the only way, actually. If I could do anything else, I certainly would do it because this is, it's so heartbreaking. But um, uh, so inside of the theater is where I feel the most comforted and comfortable. And so when there are things that um, are unjust, unfair, um, uh, and when those things are, are amplified or perpetrated, it is, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but you go on because what else will you do? It sounds like a very you powerful motivation to become an artistic director. Yes. And make, make this possible for others as well. When, when did you change, uh, when did you go, when and why did you go from being an actor to... Uh, directing? To directing. When, when did you, how, how did that evolution take place? Uh, I, I think I've always wanted to be a director, but I didn't really have access to it as a career Mm. It, how I came up. So I, I didn't, everybody I knew who directed was also an actor, you know, and they oh, were right, mainly right. an actor because, you know, I was, you know, inside of my community in, in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so we were, everybody was doing everything. Um, so I didn't really know how to get on the other side of that table uh, formally. And so I went to acting school and then I directed on the side at acting school <laughs> and I went right, to right. graduate acting school because I knew I could direct in this place called the cabaret, you know, even though I was an actor. And then secretly, I also wanted to run the cabaret, although no actors had ever run the cabaret before. And when I said, wow. I'd like the to Yale cabaret. Yeah, the Yale cabaret. Yeah. I went to the Yale cabaret as an undergraduate. I loved it. It was, it was, I loved every single moment. I never missed a show and eventually petitioned to be the artistic director. And, wow. you know, there'd never been an actor uh, Holy who was crap. the artistic director. And they said yes 
to me. And wow. I ran That's... the cabaret for a year and it was one of the most amazing experiences for me as a creator and a facilitator and a leader to go, amazing. this is what you do is actually, you know, and I'm thinking about this now in the world that we live in right now, what's a leader, right? The leader is not the person who knows how to do right. all the things. The leader sets like, what's the way in which, what's the tone in which, what's the generosity in which we will do these things? That's what mm. my job is, you know? How do I inspire us to our very best self, you know, in the things that I think are important, kindness, generosity, curiosity? How do I set that forward? That's my job as a leader. And it's how I think of my job right now at the Working Theater. So tell us a little bit about Working Theater. Um, I, I didn't, it's a 35-year-old company. This is not a new kid on <laughs> no. the block. Right. I mean, this is you guys have been around. But tell us to me, tell us a little bit about how you got uh, involved with the working theater and 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 just explain a little bit about the kinds of productions that uh, that the company does. So the working theater uh, was 35 years ago, founded um, to create work for and about working people, right? Work that wasn't about sort of the folks with the beach houses and the, the <laughs> ski trips and the, you know, uh, martinis, right, right. you know. Um, uh, right. And, and not doing Noel and Coward, huh? Not doing right. Noel Coward or Neil <laughs> right. Simon, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no martinis, you know, no capacier right. on the, you know, on the uh, high, the, the the penthouse. Uh, yeah. And so because, you know, uh, those stories were simply not represented. Um, and so uh, Mark Pleasant, who's my co-artist director, actually joined the company very shortly after it was uh, it was uh, founded um, and has been a part of its legacy for the last 35 years. And I have been uh, I was introduced to the working theater uh, 11 or 12, maybe 12 years ago at this point, I should really know this, <laughs> this time, this time frame. Um, I came on board, I was working on a play with one of the, uh, frequent, um, collaborators at working theater, uh, Rob Ackerman. And, mm. um, he, uh, and had been working on his play at the Lark, um, that it's a really beautiful play. Uh, I, I wasn't able to direct that play for the main stage, but Mark called me on the phone and he's like, I'm sorry that uh, we didn't hire you to direct this play. I know that you've been working with Rob all the time. You know, we just felt like we needed someone with more experience. Now, this is exactly the thing that we're talking about right, yes, right now. How does one get more experience without having the experiences? But I will never forget answering the phone and Mark saying, and that may be a mistake on my part. Will you come and direct something else? And mm. so he asked me to come and direct something called Best of Theater Works, which was celebrating, oh, this is exactly uh, 10 years ago, a 25th anniversary. Uh, and that began our relationship. And um, I directed these three short plays that were um, plays um, uh, built from a program uh, called TheaterWorks. TheaterWorks offers union members, um, union members, doormans, um, porters, uh, um, uh, transportation members, um, anybody who's a part of one of the greater unions here in the in the in New York can have uh, um, can participate in these classes. These classes are playwriting and theater making classes, all as a way to erase the sort of barriers of theater as an experience for working people. 
right? Theater feels like a sort of an elite gesture. It feels like something you've got to have time and money for. Um, right. Instead of asking people to come to the play, we ask them to make the play. Mm. And to be inside of the experience of being a creator and appreciate the really hard work of getting a blank sheet of paper to become a world. Mm. And the, this is how you make an audience. This is how mm. you actually create a space for folks who can really appreciate um, what theater can do for them as um, a reflection of their own value and their own humanity. And so Theater Works, um, we did a best of Theater Works. I directed five uh, small plays that were really brilliant and wonderful plays by amateur playwrights mm. with um, uh, celebrated uh Actors, Janine Serralis, you know, just mm. won an Obie and was <laughs> and right. coming in and doing this really funny office comedy for us. Um, and that began the relationship. I got a call the next year about a play called La Ruta that was uh, supposed to be oh, right. um, uh, about, supposed to be, the playwright wanted to create a play in the back of a, in a, in a, in a site-specific um, way uh, where an audience could experience what it's like to be an undocumented worker coming across the border looking for work. Um, and I'd been doing a lot of site-specific work. And Mark said, are you interested? I don't know how we can do this. I don't think this is possible. And of course, you know, everything's possible. There's the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you know. I read La Ruta. La Ruta was submitted for a Pulitzer Prize. I was on the jury. I read La Ruta, which I, and I really liked it. Oh, that's great. I'm glad it yeah. was. So, so I'll tell Ed. I'll see him yeah, today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, one of the wonderful things is, and I think this is a lot of the work at Working Theater is um, the, we encourage, and certainly I do, like, how do you have the most lateral collaboration between the playwright and the director, those actors in the space as soon as possible, and the designers? How do we all become co-authors? And so La Ruta was very much this enterprise where we're taking what Ed has put on the page and translating that into an immersive experience for an audience. Um, and it was, I think, quite powerful. Uh, 35 people in the back of a truck hearing that door slam, plunged into darkness. And then the wall opens up. I mean, an incredibly magical set. And you see the people on the other side of the this box wall um, that are, you know, five folks that are fleeing their country towards the American dream. Mm, and we mm. spend an hour and 10 minutes with them mm. telling us why this country is so beautiful. Mm. And it was just an incredible experience um, to be in this space um, interrogating those stories. So you go all, you, you stage the plays all over the city? The play was staged in the back of this, the trailer of 18 Wheeler. And then Amazing. that went to all, that went to each, a place in each of the five boroughs. So wow. we got to bring that play to wow. Staten Island, to the Bronx, to Brooklyn, to, we got to bring that play to the Amazing. audiences. Just open the doors and have 35 people at a time <laughs> enter in and take that journey with us. That's incredible. I love that. I, in general, love um, initiatives that bring the theater to people as opposed to getting people to the theater. Uh, that's why I've always been a big fan of the the, the public's uh, uh, mobile unit. Mm -hmm. uh, what they do is just fantastic. And I really wish there were more initiatives and more funding for that because there are real obstacles to go into the theater for a lot of people and we don't even think about them. 
by mm. we I mean people like us here on right. this on this podcast and a lot of people who listen to us don't even realize how hard it is to mm. imagine that just even simply imagine that you can go and that yes you belong there and so until we get to that which that's an optimal situation I, I think well it's great to bring well then you know you bring the theater to the people and there's a I mean this is it's a centuries old tradition it's not new. Uh, I love the idea of the traveling, you know, band of actors going from town to town. And that's what it is. And I, I think it's a very uh, democratic initiative. So I love that you come from that um, mm. yeah. because you, you really meet the people. And also there's this idea that sometimes we, yeah, this, it's all part of these obstacles that are so um, internalized that you don't even realize they're obstacles. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge issue. Uh, yeah. And the things that I think, I love that you said that the theater belongs to you. That is like so profoundly, right. like that is the bedrock of the, mm. of the whole initiative to, to say to folks, see, it belongs to you. See, we, it, it this is for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only we're not taking a play that we made somewhere else and bringing it to them, we're making the play inside and from the conversations in that community. And then we promise that community, we're going to take this play that's so much about you to Mm. your neighbors next door. Mm. And hopefully those neighbors next door can see, hey, I'm not so different from those folks in Queens, you know, Mm. in Electchester and Queens than I am here in the South Bronx. Like we mm-hmm. care about the same things. We care about feeding our children, not just good food and nutritious food, but great knowledge and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we care about that. And, and yeah. I'll, I'll tell you also one thing, and then I'll stop. But one thing that's bugged me for a long time, always bugged me, is this idea that this kind of cast on the idea of community theater, that it's a kind of inferior kind of theater. And that really annoys me because you, you're framing it in a way, you're framing the terms of the discourse in a way that there's theater and then there's community theater that is not as good. I don't know if you read that book by Hillary Miller about uh, theater in New York in the 70s. And there were tons of those initiatives of bringing theater to neighborhoods and community centers and mm-hmm. uh, nursing homes. and and there's But there's a lot less now, I think. Uh, and I, I really think it's very important to just really invest in that. Right. We have to invest in talking to each other. That's what, I mean, we were, yeah, that, that's what we have to invest in. And I think that along with the community theater and the community initiatives, uh, and, and we're examining this right now in terms of how our police uh, departments work, right? And right. so defunding those community initiatives and ways for communities to create together and for artists to come into communities and, 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 and tell stories together, defunding that means then you have to, mm, you've taken away um, ways and means for young people to actually be involved in something that helps them grow into the, you know, into thriving adults. And then what are they left with? And what they're left with is something that then you want to police. <laughs> That's yeah. whatever that is. Um, yeah. the, the idleness of, of not having something to mm-hmm. actually create. Tamara, beyond questions of identity and community, it also occurs to me that especially nowadays, the mere idea that one might go to a show on a stage is alien to most people. They have never done it. Very possibly, they don't know anybody who's done it. 
and they have enormous, enormous competition from experiences that come to them. And it seems to me that one of the biggest problems facing all live theater is you know, how do you show people that it's, it's good. It's something that's life changing and exciting and that they can have it too. I mean, it, it strikes me that what you're doing is, is peculiarly well suited to engaging with this problem. But is this something that you think about the, the larger cultural competition with live theater? Yeah, you have to make the theater going low stakes. And that's like, you know, how do we keep interrogating? How do we make it low stakes, low stakes, low stakes, low stakes? Take away the economic barrier mm. so that it's not about how much you have to pay for a ticket. Take away the location barrier to let's get mm -hmm. the performance closer to them. Um, open the, like, visually, how can you make it inviting so that they're not crossing so many barriers, big, heavy doors, big, heavy gates, things that don't have windows where you cannot see inside of it. And then let's make sure that the folks that are next to them look like the folks that we want to be in this building. And so nobody wants to be the stranger in the room. Mm. There's, uh, uh, it's exciting to hear you because it's, 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 it's gelling for me some ideas that are swimming around and maybe this is going to help um, make them uh, draw more people out to talk about them. You know, we, it's true. The theaters are, you know, before this pause, we're elite portals. We, you know, you had to be channeled into those expensive uh, places where you saw plays. And it's what you're describing, Tamala, is a world where we, you know, maybe these places have to break down the uh, how they uh, view their communities. It, it, it has to be a reorientation and a figuring out how to bring their uh, bring the theater into those places, not bring those people into their spaces. Right. It feels like more of that has to happen. Yeah. And also we have to think about how are we allotting, what are we paying for? Right. So our budgets are whatever, you know, a hundred thousand, 150,000, 250,000, 20,000, 10,000, whatever the budget is. And how much of that goes to uh, paying the rent for the venue or the mortgage, if you own it, how much of it goes to the seat, how much the set costs and the costumes costs and all the things that aren't the people. How can we reallocate things to the, to, so that it's directly benefiting the people, the people who are the actors who are making it, the playwright, the director who are making it, who need to earn a living wage, which is very hard to do if you're not on Broadway. And then the people who would like to come, how do we make it easy for them? Let's put money into making it easy and accessible for folks to be inside of the performance spaces, whether they're virtual or real. Well, I, I think one of the things that's going to come up, and I think it needs to come up, and now is, is a good, I mean, if there's one silver lining, <laughs> is that we have to rethink that. Um, and, and I really hope that a lot of it will be questioned by, uh, for instance, I think the, the way funding is organized, whether it's, it's, uh, philanthropy, you know, grants, uh, or public funding, how, how is that organized? Where is it going to? In the past 10, 15 years, we've seen like a rash of really fancy buildings, for instance. Theaters were getting these really like multi-million dollars like centers and, you know, rich people love putting their name on buildings. Okay, well, who's paying for the operating budget? The operating budget is the staff, the actors, um, giving them health benefits. Uh, maybe we need more uh, uh, like initiatives like the signature, you know, the $25 
tickets at the signature are funded by a grant. That to me is a good way to go at it rather than paying for a fancy building, which they also have anyway. So they managed right. to have their building and it did too. But um, I really hope that the big foundations are going to rethink how they give money to what they give money, who they give money to. Uh, I, I don't know how else. We, we can't go back. It's just not possible. But how do we? How do you merge the communities that working the working theater is is go is reaching out to, with those communities that traditionally think of the theater as a place to uh, for uh, diversion and or illumination? How mm. do those come together? Where right. does that? It feels like that's a you know it's a canyon now. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking to Tamala, we're hearing about these communities where you can get people excited about what they're seeing because you make it relevant to their lives. Um, is it, is it, do we need a whole rethink of the leadership of some of these big theaters? I mean, you know, the public tries to do that to some degree is, you know, is this moment, you know, and I hear artistic leaders talk about, you know, bringing more people into the tent, you know, that this time is a time to do that. But, you know, is that, is that a, how does that happen with the structure as it exists now? I, I, I think sometimes we're trying to do too many things at once, <laughs> you know? And like, in a way, it's like, how do you bring people together? It's like, first, <laughs> maybe we can just take our lens away from the folks over here that for which theater is the diversion mm -hmm. and the luxury and put it over here. The for folks for which mm. is the diversion and luxury probably going to be there. They'll go see the theater wherever the theater is, right? If there was no more right. theater in Manhattan... You're, you know, you're going to get in a car and go to the Bronx, <laughs> go to the theater. I'm not worried about that. Anyway, I am not right. concerned about you finding theater, right? right? right. Because you're right. looking for it. How do right. we wake right. up the um, appetite for this storytelling um, in places where people have been shut out of it as something that, you know, where they've I, been taught that it's not for them. How do we unteach mm -hmm. that? That's the question. Yeah, that is, yeah. I, I mean, for me, that is the question. Well, I mean, mm. you do, I, I think that, I, I, I think it is about being okay with rolling into Staten Island and there only being six people there for your five performances. Because the next mm. year there'll be seven and the next there'll be nine. I think it's also about creating ways for the audience to engage and, and telling them that they don't need to come with anything more than themselves. They don't have to have some sort of, you know, degree in literature in order to enjoy mm. um, a play. And I think it also means that we deritualize a lot of the things that we require. Sitting quiet in the dark is is a is why. <laughs> Why do we yeah, need to do right. that? <laughs> you right. know, the whole point of theater is we're all there together. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, Tamala, I, I cover regional theater. And so I talk to a lot of regional theater artistic directors. And the companies that are really afraid right now uh, for their future are, for the most part, the big ones, the ones that have built the big buildings, so the ones that have been a little imprudent and some of the biggest companies in this country i think are going to go down and i, I hesitate to say this but the if the pandemic might lead to something profitable something better it might be that in specifically in companies like in age areas like those 
that that might be the only way that you really do create a, a change in the theatrical ecology is if uh, the, the big giant theater downtown suddenly doesn't exist anymore and everybody has to start really thinking about what theater's for, how they get it back, who they should support. Um, I mean, I, I, listening to you talk about this has been making me think that as well, that I mean, there are there are large companies that are a boon and a blessing on on theater in America, and there are others that honestly are just there. And um, I, I, I'm wondering what the scene is going to look like six months from now, a year from now, and I know that some of these companies are going to be gone, and I don't know that it's entirely a bad thing. Am I crazy to think this? Um imminent and necessary. Um, uh, but you know, we'll all get through it. I mean, the Lord, the whole system was created uh, for the thing that we're now hoping we can get back to, right? Putting a theater in the right. communities mm-hmm. where, um, uh, that are not the sort of like, um, uh, uh, artistic hubs of, of the country. Like that's the whole point. And so I think we're going to just get to refurbish that idea into something that works again. Um, and our, you know, subscriptions are like timeshares, right? And you, we all know, like eventually that timeshare hotel is going to go down <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're counting on some folks paying into something, um, uh, indefinitely. And, uh, I, 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 I think that I no longer can commit to anything beyond next week or maybe next month. And that's how this life goes right now. And so we have to reimagine mm-hmm. our system, um, of our economic system, our fiscal system, so that we're okay with the fact that you're programming three months at a time or six months at a time instead of an entire season. Um, and that mm. you're using the money that is coming in the door, um, because uh, until we can actually mm. get a national endowment that actually works for the arts. And that's actually what should happen. But until, I guess, I don't know. I mean, we have, uh, the, the problem is that folks don't really think theater is valuable so that it's, we don't invest in it. And I'm telling you that us telling stories to each other about who we are again and again and again is absolutely freaking necessary until we can actually see the human that's in front of us for who they are. Tamala, I have a I, I have a question uh, that, that I think needs to be addressed in the in the midst of this. You know, I, I looked at the work the Working Theater website where you ha- you've posted uh, a, a message to uh, audiences that you know you're in response to uh, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's uh, death and the the death of Armand Arbery and Brianna. I mean, the, the you know that is a clear uh, message you're sending out to, but you're asking people to give, not necessarily. Um, just saying something, you want people to act. My question to you is, you know, every theater in the country seems to be issuing a statement in support of, of exploring, you know, racism and white supremacy at this moment. It's almost like become a, you know, the theatrical equivalent mm-hmm. of thoughts and yeah. prayers, you know, sending out and, you know, as how, you know, how do you receive this? You know, I see from the working theater statement, it's you're, you're basically conveying the idea that something, you know, do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. What do you want? What do you think needs 
what kind of convening or what kind of group effort or what kind of reflection has to happen now for us to understand that this is not just something to, you know, get your communication staff to yeah, issue a statement I, about. I, um, I mean, this is a, this is like really uh, a big question. There are a, f- a few things and maybe not coherent things, but to say um, uh, one of the things that I think folks are hoping is that they can quickly do a thing that doesn't hurt at too much and then move on with their lives. It's like the old Band-Aid, right? right? Like take the old right. Band-Aid off, like just get it off. <laughs> and then it's like, ow, and then whew, that's over, you know, <laughs> and you're, you're back to healing. And that's not going to be the case. The thing, or, or rather I'm, I and, you know, many, 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 many of my colleagues and people I do not know are working for that not to be the case. We can't actually exit this moment and go back to wherever we were, but that's in all things in this country, this place. I mean, it is, um, mm. uh, it is, uh, incumbent on us if we want to survive we are going to have to re we're going to have to adjust our um uh way of being that means that some folks are going to have to give up some things that they've held dear mm-hmm. starts with a p ends with an r <laughs> Right. Uh, And and allow uh, or invite or make space or give over or let it be taken um, uh, um, for other folks um, to occupy, for black bodies and brown bodies and indigenous bodies to occupy these spaces of power and decision making. As long as those those places of decision making are occupied by 90 percent of white people, then nothing different will happen. And it's just too much to ask you <laughs> to make decisions on my behalf. Right. I have to make decisions for mm. me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We were talking about this the other day. Uh, the, in a sense, the easiest thing in the world for a theater company to do is change its repertory because all they have to do is do that. Uh, they don't have any trouble finding out, you know, what are good plays by black writers, past and present. You can answer that question in 30 seconds. Is that misguided? I disagree. Uh, this goes back to Tell the me. experience question, right? You know, um, looking for folks who have enough experience to work at your theater. Those people will never have enough yeah. experience to work at your theater until they work at your theater. Um, and I think the stakes right. that are around producing a play are kind of ridiculous because it's all about money and investment, right? And so people don't want to take chances with people that they think may not be able to deliver. And so the cat, the, it's like, exactly. we, uh, we, it's, you know, and Broadway is very much that, right? It's like, oh my gosh, there's an enormous amount of, of cash um, uh, and um, financial potential um, uh, that's at stake with every single play that arrives on the Great White Way. Uh, and, <laughs> and so you begin to narrow what is possible in terms of the folks who can bring that thing forward because ultimately, implicitly, your racial right. bias is at work because you think that only the people who have done it a lot can deliver it, or only people who've gone to these very special schools can deliver it, or only the people who have been sort of like sanctioned by other institutions can do it. And we are, it's deadly for the art form um, to, you know, Mm. first of all, and it is, it becomes absolutely impossible to, I'll use this word, um, integrate (laughs) the theater. 
there's just, there are too many, too many doors. Mm. There are too many, too many stops. People aren't willing to lose something that they think is uh, a, like their money because they think that um, a particular kind of artist can't deliver the product. And that's wholly untrue. Mm. The phrase you used earlier that really struck me was lowering the stakes. That it just, there is so much money at stake that, that established people are terrified to yeah. take chances in the present system as it exists. Well, it's also the fact that there's uh, this uncanny way that the, uh, the, the goalposts keep moving also. And the bar is very, very different for different people. Uh, I, to me, for instance, someone uh, I very much admire, uh, uh, Lynn Nottage, for many reasons. And it is striking to me that it took her so long to have a play on Broadway. Um, when writer, playwrights of much lesser accomplishment and skill and talent, what, whatever, you know, I mean, she works in a very specific, like, quote unquote, mainstream medium, but she's incredibly, she's great. Um, why did it take her so long when the bar seems to set, be set a lot lower for a lot of white guys? Like who get on Broadway with their first or second play? That that really that mm. it fills me with white rage, <laughs> pun not intended, <laughs> uh, every time uh, mm. because uh, yeah, it just burns me to see that the bar just keeps is very different for different people. I'm curious about one thing. Actually, I, I, I'm going to. Uh, I have one question for you. Uh, it, it seems to me that in the past ten years or so, the the most vital theater in America. Uh, in terms of playwriting, has come from black writers. There's like to me, there's no question about it. It's like the most vital, uh, formally uh, innovative, uh, in terms of form, in terms of content. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's just like there, there's no question. So, and I think I don't think that's a very provocative statement. I think we we all know that. There's just I don't know that anybody would argue with that. Uh, I wouldn't. And yet we still have these issues. This, this issues of, of access that are, that are continuing. Like, how do you explain that seeming uh, paradox? I can't, ex I can tell I you what it's been said to me, you know, all the, the people who get to make choices. Uh, and this is not, you know, and this is, this is also by way of excuse um, that folks are like, I'm not sure my audience will get it. I'm not <laughs> sure my audience will come. I think they'll, they'll opt out of that play in their subscription series. Huh. Right. And so and so on the one hand, I absolutely agree with you that some of the most exciting work that I see in the theater is, you know, has been in, you know, by black artists. Um, and it is for formally challenging. And it is because right. this we're trying to get forward the same the same the same idea. Look over here. I'm a, I'm a human. I have an experience beyond suffering. And so having to tell that story, right. like, it's like, okay, I'll tell it like this. Okay. Let me try it like this. Okay. How about like this? Okay. How about like, <laughs> it's like literally just trying to look for like, what right. is going to actually like allow, um, for folks to snap out of their delirium, you know, white folks to snap out of their delirium. And, and, and it's just, I said, I mean, I think the most innov innovative and imaginative work, um, is because these, uh, you know, black artists are having to tell the same story a million different ways. Yeah. Mm. And you know, it doesn't have to be formally innovative either. If you can't sell a play like the hot wing King or Tony stone or, or intimate apparel, 
you can't sell anything. And those plays work. They work in front of audiences of all kinds. They're as close to surefire as they get. Anybody who resists doing those shows really needs to be thinking many, many times over. I, I don't, I do not get well, that kind of thinking. Can I just say, I mean, we should turn the camera around and point out that not only are 90% of the artistic directors white and not only are virtually every Broadway producer white, but most of the people who write about the theater from our, in our, um, in, in, in our job yeah. classification are white. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just yeah. a fact. And, and this, this question about, is this even a play? It's like, it drives in it. And it happens so often, I think with, um, black indigenous and people of color plays that the, the, the question becomes, well, is this a play? Is this really theater? It's like, um, right. well, what exactly are the criteria? You know, <laughs> you know and I think that that's, right. an, that's right. a way of undermining um, uh, what, undermining the many, many, many different tools um, that black and um, uh, brown uh, artists are utilizing to tell story because they don't have the same access to uh, um, exposure. They don't have the same amount of monies in their budgets. They're in the weird part of the season where you got to get people to come out in the snow to see your play or go in hot in June when everybody's left the city. You know, there are all of these ways, like how do we entice, they're having, we're having to entice people um, to the theater, to the event, to see, to witness the work in a way that that is not a part of the experience of a lot of, of white theater makers. One, one interesting, um, uh, uh, Tamla, I found one interesting uh, 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 offshoot was the public theater's um, Hercules last summer, which uh, combined professional actors, uh, a, a white songwriting team, uh, and, and community, you know, they they brought in over like 200 performers, you know, amateur performers who became part of this highly professional, polished production. They did bring those two worlds together. I'm not saying it's the solution, but it was sort of a dramatization of the, you know, the there are all kinds of permutations that can be tried that we're only beginning to scratch the surface of. And they're, those are special events. And I guess the idea is how does that, you know, it's making those things much more regular in all kinds of manifestations, not just, uh, you know, special park, you know, uh, Shakespeare in the Park performances. But it does seem to me like there are, there are artists of all, of good intention of all backgrounds trying to, you know, foment yeah. some kind of change. And I think change. it's also important to, like, when you bring people on your stage, the actors, the writers, the, you know, or into your theaters, that you make sure as a theater um, producer, owner, artistic director, that those people are also welcome in those seats and that they feel that welcome. And that that's really incredibly important. Right. That's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tamla, how important is Broadway? I mean, especially, I mean, now... Everybody's important to the same degree because everybody's closed. But, um, you know, I, it strikes me that, in, especially in light of what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, that Broadway is really, in a sense, just a kind of a, a sealed chamber with a, 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 it's like a, it's like a rather large club. And that its relevance to the larger world of theater and what theater can do and be 
it seems pretty limited compared to what you're talking about. I, I don't know whether we're ever going to change Broadway, although if anything changes it, being closed for nearly a year will do that. But is it better just to say the hell with it? We're going to build new things from the ground up. How do you how do you feel about Broadway relative to your own life as well, a theater maker? I, I do love Broadway. Uh <laughs> I do love Broadway. We all love a good show. I think that yeah. there's, you know, we live in, um, it's an ecosphere and there's room for a lot of different ways of doing things and a lot of different uh, kinds of stories to be told, a lot of different storytellers and a lot of different kinds of venues and places where people can meet those stories in. And that that should continue, that a level of, uh, or, or rather be increased, the level of variety and access. I think that Broadway will benefit a lot by making sure that the audiences that are in those theaters rep look like this look like this city that we live in. I think the people who normally yeah. uh, can buy those very expensive tickets on Broadway will benefit tremendously by having an audience that's not full of folks who can just buy those tickets at two hundred and three hundred and four hundred dollar ticket uh, things, or that they're saving for you know. Right. Uh, somebody's birthday for half a year uh, to buy one ticket. So we all right. benefit um, by making sure that we create uh, greater points of access at all levels of the theater making process. Um, I would like for you, Terry, to get to the Bronx to see a show at Pergones, you know, and see what it's like to be in that audience. I mean, it is a thrilling experience to be in an audience where you can hear people breathing and laughing and clapping at all the quote unquote, not appropriate times. And that the idea <laughs> that we're all there, yeah. to, there, we're all there together is like uh, announced every single second of the performance. Really thrilling. Well, I think we're going to have to, uh, uh, you know, get a limo and uh, or, a sh uh, or a lift, a lift or a Uber up to Pregonis or to one of the next uh, when working theater is. Do you have an issue with public transportation, <laughs> Peter? Uh, or we can take a bus. Or I just was thinking for the the sake of uh, of or making sure we all we all got on. Yes, exactly. Um, but we have to absolutely uh, uh, get up to um, uh, I, I uh, that's going to be a, a priority for me when this is all over. Mm. And I just wanted to say, you know, now that this is actually, I think, the longest interview we've done on uh, Three on the Aisle, uh, this has been, you know, a fascinating yeah, conversation. And the, I think maybe could, the best. Oh, thank you. Channel. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. tell you how inspiring I, I, it's been to hear you talk. Thank you. Uh, I, I think this has been, you know, um, we're going to have you back, uh, Tamala, when theater is back, too, uh, so we can talk more about uh, the work you do uh, after we've all uh, uh, gotten over this period of, of, of <laughs> torpor and, and anxiety. Wash our clothes um, but, and cut our hair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But th so thank you, Tamala. Um, My pleasure. Uh, it, and, and anybody who wants more information about uh, The Working Theater, it's uh, they can go to the, your website, theworkingtheater.org. Spelled E-R, theater spelled E-R. Right, right. Yes, the democratic way. So so thanks again. Thank you so much. Um, boy, that conversation with Tamala was really amazing. Uh, I got so much out of that, and I can't wait to talk with her again sometime. Yeah. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. Our super-powered producer is Erica Wong. You can follow us on Twitter at three on the aisle, spell it out, and write to us with questions. We love questions. 
at three on the aisle at gmail.com. Again, spell it out. And please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave us a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play or whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the virtual aisle.